0: The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com. For more information, you can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for episode 52 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at Murder My Fam or by searching for The Murder of My Family Podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me. Forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Gina Gigi and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Being that it's a new year, I wanted to talk about one of the things I'm really excited about in 2020, and that's attending the Crime Con convention in Orlando this May. I'll be on Podcast Row supporting my podcast, Criminology. Three Men in a Mystery, and The Murder of My Family. I hope we'll see you there. And if you're thinking about going, be sure to use my promo code that will save you 10% off registration at crimecon.com. That promo code is criminology2020. And again, that will save you 10% off a standard badge. And I hope to see you there this May. And one last note before we get started please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor's support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. When 21-year-old Pennsylvania native Ryan McCall lost his life on a Tampa, Florida street in 2009, a promising life was cut short in a senseless and random act of violence. His murder left a void in the lives of his family. Ryan was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And what's most frightening of all is that any one of us could find ourselves in that same place. Ryan Patrick McCall was born in Pennsylvania on February 19, 1988, to Kevin and Joanne McCall, one of three children born to the couple. The family resided in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. From the time he was a child, Ryan always loved sports. He played football and ran track and cross country at Saint Joseph Elementary School, and then at Downingtown West High School. He also played for the Marsh Creek Eagles, a youth football club. Ryan was also a die-hard Philadelphia sports fan, and unless you're one yourself, you probably wouldn't understand the highs and lows that being a Philly sports fan provides but Ryan stuck with his teams through thick and thin. In 2006, Ryan graduated from Downingtown West High School and attended the University of Tampa in the fall. It was there that he majored in exercise science and was a member of the track team. He also found time to coach the track team at Tampa Prep School. To earn extra money, he worked in a grocery store. As busy as he was, Ryan still managed to keep a 3.6 grade point average. By all accounts, he was a good kid with a bright future ahead of him. On August 18, 2009, Ryan and his best friend, Michael Harahan, celebrated another friend's 21st birthday at a local bar called Retreat, located on Hyde Park Avenue in Tampa. The pair left Retreat at around 3 a.m. on the morning of August 19th to head back to Ryan's home. But neither one of the young men had enough money to call a taxi service, so they decided to make the trip on foot. As they were walking home, a stranger jumped out of the bushes near North Boulevard Bridge and demanded money. Ryan gave the man what little money he had left. Michael instinctively ran for help and heard a gunshot as he fled. He had no idea that the stranger shot Ryan once. The bullet that struck Ryan entered his arm, made its way into his torso and pierced his heart. He died at the scene, alone in the dark. When Tampa police arrived, they found Ryan's body at the north foot of the bridge that arches over the Hillsborough River. The route Ryan and Michael were walking led to an area north of the university that was known for violent crimes at the time. It just so happened that during the attack, Michael was making a phone call when the man jumped out. A voicemail partially recorded the man's voice saying, get over here. Get the F over here. Police were provided with details of Ryan's killer. He was described as being an African American man in his mid-twenties to thirties, about five foot ten, and weighing roughly 180 pounds with a husky build. He was wearing a white t-shirt, had short cropped hair, and possibly facial hair. As police searched for the gunman, they also took steps to notify Ryan's parents, who themselves had transplanted from Pennsylvania to live in Florida. Ryan's father, Kevin McCall, learned the news first while his wife was at work. He then anguished as he thought about how to share the heartbreaking news with his wife. He confronted Joanne at work and found a way to let her know that her son was dead. Understandably, this was the beginning of a long and painful road mixed with tears, anger, and questions, and Ryan's parents would have to be patient as they waited for justice. News quickly spread of Ryan's senseless murder, and grief counselors were on hand to help students cope with the tragedy. Students began walking in groups for safety. Unfortunately, it would take three years before an arrest was made in Ryan's murder. That day finally came in May 2012. Tampa Police Detective Sal Argeri, who was in charge of the case, filed a warrant with the state attorney's office to arrest 21-year-old David Earl Williams Jr. They didn't have to look far for Williams. He was already in prison. He had been a person of interest from day one. Williams had an extensive criminal record, starting at the age of 11, when he was accused of beating up and robbing a fellow student. By the time Ryan was murdered, Williams had been arrested 30 times. In 2007, Williams was driving a 1999 Nissan Altima when a Tampa police officer signaled for him to pull over. But Williams kept going and rammed his car into the police car. The chase finally ended when Williams ran the ultimate into a concrete barrier, and the car caught on fire. He was charged with aggravated assault for that incident. Six months later, while serving time for the assault charge in a juvenile detention facility, he beat up an employee there. A judge ordered that Williams remain in the detention facility until his 19th birthday. He got out in July 2009, five months after he turned 19. He had only been free 27 days before he shot Ryan McCall. 11 days after Ryan's murder, Williams knocked two men to the ground and stole their wallets and cell phones. Two days after that, he burglarized two homes in West Tampa. The following day, police arrested him, and he admitted to the robbery and burglaries. A few months later, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. When investigators questioned Williams... He claimed that he was involved in attacking Ryan and Michael, but that an associate of his had pulled the trigger. Detectives didn't buy it, and Williams was arrested shortly after. It wasn't until three years after his arrest that his murder trial finally began in April 2015. The jury found Williams guilty of first-degree murder, and the judge immediately sentenced Williams to life without the possibility of parole. Williams is only mentioned in this episode as a footnote, an afterthought. He's mentioned because he's proof that some people deserve to be off the streets for good so they can't hurt innocent people. A man with a record like his should never have been free to harm Ryan or anyone else for that matter. The conviction and life sentence of the man that took their son's life has been bittersweet for the McCall family. While they'll never get their son back, the conviction has allowed them to finally move forward. They never let people forget Ryan either. They established a foundation called the Ryan P. McCall Foundation to carry out Ryan's vision of helping others and to give back to their community. In Ryan's memory, every year runners take part in an event called Ryan's Run in both Westchester, Pennsylvania and Tampa, Florida. The event serves to honor Ryan and keep his memory alive. Ten years after his son's murder, Kevin McCall wrote a book called For the Love of Family how a knock on the door changed everything. The book is a collection of a father's thoughts, feelings, and experiences following his son's murder, and I can't recommend it enough. Kevin was kind enough to join me to discuss the book and his son Ryan. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Kevin, and thanks for coming on to discuss your son Ryan's case with us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. If you would, can you tell us a little bit about Ryan and what kind of person he was?
0: Yeah, um, Ryan was the uh, baby of the family. So um, he brought a uh, great sense of humor along with him from the time he was uh, able to start communicating. Um he was uh, his bird was very loving and giving. Um you ask him to do anything, he would be right there for you. Um as he got older. Uh he loved working with uh, you know kids and, and trying to mentor, um you know, giving giving some guidance that, that like help, helping that uh he was helping um them, you know, reach their potentials in life. Um as he always did himself he he always pushed himself as hard as he could to uh, reach at least what he wanted to get to. Um, so you know he he, he his sense of humor was uh, one of those where dinner could have been dinner time was always together, and uh but you know if it's a serious conversation in the middle of it, he would just say something, and everybody would just stop and start laughing and. Um, the conversation would be light and airy after that. <laughs> um, that's the, that's the kind of, uh, young man, uh, young boy and then a young man that he was.
1: And a couple of the articles I read mentioned Ryan as being sort of an all American kid. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess he was, uh, you know, someone who, you know, uh, worked hard, um, wanted to be um the best person he could be uh every day and he you know made sure that um the way he looked at life um that it was uh, not as serious as he you know as some people would take it That he wanted to enjoy what he had
1: one thing i read too was that Ryan was a big fan of Philadelphia sports teams? Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, well, we grew up in the Philadelphia area. Um, we raised our family out in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. Originally, uh, my wife and I were married and lived in Cane and then eventually moved out to Downingtown. And of course, um, Philadelphia—you know—sports was big in our family growing up. And then I brought it into our—you know—our family with our children, and he um, was. A major red eagle fan, like loved the Phillies, but um, and the Flyers, but the Eagles were his passion. And uh, every game, you know, he you know he wore the loss and the victory on his sleeves, and especially the loss. Like we all do his eagle fans, we take you all the way to Wednesday, and then Thursday, you would turn around to go to the next Sunday, and he would be down and out, and um, it. it Tell you a crazy story about it. Um we were it was back when the Eagles were playing um the Arizona Cardinals in the playoff game and we were down and I'm like, don't worry about it. We'll we'll come back and uh we almost came back and won and he turned around to me, I hate you dad. I said, What do you mean? He said you made me an Eagle fan and they're only disappointing me <laughs> And <laughs> that that's, that's exactly and I was like, okay and then he stormed out of the house and you know, he had a voice of steam off, and <laughs> he, he, he he wore it so hard that it, it hurt him for a while.
1: <laughs> and I think that's a little bit of an inside joke for those of us that live in the Philly area. I don't think most people will understand the, the frustration, the highs and lows of being an Eagles fan in this neck of the woods are.
0: Uh, yeah, that's for sure.
1: <laughs>
0: well,
1: Ryan's path took him down to Florida to go to school, he was attending the University of Tampa. How long before Ryan was killed did he start attending school there, and did he enjoy going to college there?
0: Oh, he loved it. Um, his brother, you know, um, went to the same university, and um, he graduated and stayed down there, and then Ryan started. And in his fresh, you know, if he, got to, he was going into his senior year, um, the August of his senior year when um, he was murdered. Uh, he just loved the university, the the, the cross country track team. Um, he, he was, you know, he just loved the the camaraderie of everybody and uh, how how the university treated him. He was, he really loved it.
1: What kind of courses was was he taking?
0: Um, he, he was working towards an allied health, um, which he really wanted to be a physical therapist eventually. Um, he was looking into uh, where he was going to go after he graduated to get his doctorate in uh, physical therapy. And that, that was his passion to hopefully, um, you know, help people. And I think he was working towards maybe getting into the kind of the sports end of it.
1: And you mentioned that he loved the school, didn't have any bad experiences. Had he ever voiced any concerns about living in that area, going to school in that area, having any kind of run-ins or altercations with anyone that caused him to be uh, alarmed at all?
0: Not, not at all. Um, you know, the, of course, university in a big city and there, there was never any real concerns. Of, um, he lived on campus for the first three years. So um, going into his senior year, they decided to move off campus, which really wasn't uh, maybe a half a mile, three quarters of a mile from, from campus. Um, and, and, you know, the neighborhood starts to change a little bit when you get down through there. Um, you know, but still, there was no real concerns. Um, he just understood that hopefully, you know, that that you always be aware of your surroundings. You know, um, he actually would talk to people about that because that's the way I taught him. You know, you always be aware where you're at and your surroundings. And um, so I think he understood all that.
1: And it was all 19, 2009, that Ryan was murdered. If you could, as far as you understand it, can you tell us sort of how that night unfolded for Ryan?
0: Yeah. Um, I guess I'll start a little bit in earlier in the day. My son, Kevin, um, was purchasing his, his first house, and um, we were moving him in, and Ryan was there with a few of his college friends uh, helping Kevin move in, and it was probably about um, five o'clock ish or so that um, Ryan Ryan and Kevin came back from getting um, you know running down to Best Buy's and they were coming back and he looked at me and said, "Dad, do you need me anymore?" I said, "No, you can go. Um, be safe. You need any money? No, I'm good." And um, my son Kevin took him back to his house because they were having a uh, birthday party for one of his roommates um, that night. So he got back. They were having the party. Um, Some reason around 1030 or so, they all decided to go down to a college bar down near the university. And at that point, um, no one was driving. So they were walking, walking home, you know, around uh, quarter to three in the morning. And uh, they were coming over the bridge, and at that point, that's when um, Ryan and his friend were uh, approached by someone, you know, telling them to, you know, give them all their money, you know. And um, from, uh, Ryan's friend was uh, pistol whipped. said to Ryan, you know, uh, that we got to go, and and after that, it was very quick, his friend started to run. And, um, all you new members is hearing a shot thought Ryan was ahead of him because Ryan was a you know, pretty fast track guy, and never looked back and got to the house. And at that point, they realized Ryan wasn't with them. And um at that point they they all called nine one one and went back to the scene. And by that time, the police were there really, very quickly um. Within minutes, they were there. And this is about three o'clock in the morning when the saw came down. and um, from that point on, they all found out there that um ryan you know they you know they don't think they knew if he passed yet at that point, but eventually um being around that for a while because the, the scene got really crazy. and um as far as I know, they were told not to call us to make sure that we were notified through the right channels.
1: And this really seems like a, a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, did they cooperate? Was there any uh, indication that they, uh, the person attacked them because they didn't cooperate or did it happen so quickly that uh, it's not even clear what, what happened?
0: And it happened. It happened within seconds. It was so quick. That um no one, you know, as far as his friend, you know, they were he was just like the guy said something to them, and um, there was no reaction between the two of them other than he tried to just run his friends, and he thought Ryan was with him.
1: and it's it's sort of like uh, the kind of random act of violence that I think any one of us could could be in at any time. And that's I, I think that's one of the scary things about this this case um, you mentioned having to get the news through the right channels about what happened to Ryan H- how did you find that out and how how soon did you find that out
0: well Ryan was uh, it, it ought be uh, cranking down around three o'clock in the morning um, my wife was going to work around 5:30. And I was in my office um, working on some things for the day. And about uh, 7.15, I had a loud knock on the door. Uh, I just kind of said, well, that's strange. And then it was really two hard knocks and then two rapid knocks. And at that point, I knew either something was wrong on the street, either a house next door maybe there was uh, a problem in there or somebody was asking um, there's an emergency and they were asking me to, you know, knocking on our door to, to either get out or something like that. So I got up out of my, uh, you know, the chair and walked down the hallway. And as I got to the door, they knocked again twice. And at that point, I was, I just had a weird feeling in my stomach. And as I, uh, as I opened the door, I seen the three officers standing there. And they, uh, the lieutenant, um, Asked me if I was Mr. Kevin McCall. And I told him yes. And at that point, I thought maybe it was my wife. Then it was about an hour and a half or so after she went to work. And um, he said, Is your wife at home? And at that point, um, I really got that lump in my throat that I knew it was one of my kids. And I asked him, Which one of my children was it? And uh, his response was, can we come in, Mr. McCall? And I I just stood at the door. I don't know. It probably was seconds, but it felt like um, hours in a way. And um, he asked me quite a few times. And eventually, I let them in the door. And uh, we walked down the hall into my kitchen. And uh, he stood there. And at that point, you know, I thought maybe, you know, most of the time you're thinking it's a car accident or, an accident, something happened at late, you know, early morning. And you uh, said um, uh, your son Ryan was uh, murdered in a robbery attempt in Tampa early this morning. And it didn't click right away. It uh, kind of wasn't sinking in. I'm still thinking car accident. And um, then within seconds of that, it started to really just um, hit home about what they were talking about. And I just um, asked him, you know, who was he with anybody, and they told me yes. And I asked him if, he, if his friend was okay, and they told me he was okay. And then I asked him um, where was Ryan shot, and they started to tell me the location, and I wasn't asking about the location where it was on his body. I was more concerned about, um, you know, he was shot and was he really dead. And at that point, um the corporal um, asked me to uh if if at that point um, should they call the can he call the detective and I, can i talk to you know and you i could talk to him so he picks up my cell phone, which i looked it was kind of strange, and he dials his number with my cell phone. And, uh, the detective gets on the phone and, uh, says, uh, Mr. McCall, this is, uh, detective Salager at the Tampa police department. And this is something, um, I don't like to tell any father, but, um, he proceeded to tell me what happened to Ryan. And at that point he said, anytime you need me, please don't hesitate to call. And I said, okay, I put the phone down. The corporal looked at me and said, now you have his number and at that point the uh, lieutenant and you know as i was standing there the corporal most of the time was very close to me next to me so i guess i looked pretty unstable even though i was trying to you know be as strong as i needed to be because i knew this day was going to be upside down completely and 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 they they were um very detailed on every question that i asked they almost had an answer to so um You know, they were pretty good on, on what, what happened. So, and I was so surprised that they almost knew every question I was going to ask. (laughs) Um, And at that point, um, they just asked me, did they want me to go get my wife? And I said, no, I'll go get her. And they said, we really don't think you should drive. And at that point I said, I know I'll find somehow to get there, but I need to tell her, well, we can take you. And I said, no, I don't think that's a good idea the police go into her place of business. Um, and the lieutenant said, well, you know, once we walk out this door, it's going to be all over the news, and I really think you should get there as quickly as you can. And I walked him down the hallway and closed the door, and I knew at that point normal was all over for us.
1: So you're, you're left with this bombshell, that, the news that no parent wants to hear, and now you're, you're forced to have to break this same news to your wife. Was that just as difficult having to share that with your wife as it was hearing it yourself?
0: Um, I think it was much more difficult, but I knew it had to come from me. Um, Cause soon as, you know, as soon as they left, I had to call my daughter and my son and at that, you know, and that was really hard to do um, knowing the kind of response I would provide get getting. You know, so, you know, once, once I, Contacted them. I got myself changed. Um, a neighbor came down. Um, not, you know, they they knew something happened because it was all over the news that morning, and I didn't know it. I usually watch the news from start to finish, but they did They didn't know who it was until they seen the three cop cars down the street. So they quickly came down, asked me, "It was it Ryan?" And what do you need? And I said, "I need a ride to go get you in." So. He, he drives me down and I'm trying to dial family members before he finds out no one's answering. Of course, it's fairly early in the morning. And I get to a place of business and I go in. And um, I'm just kind of moseying around trying to figure out, huh, how am I going to do this? Get her. I, I didn't want to tell her to place a business. I wanted to get her out of the uh, um, the store. So I told her, can you get your manager? um I'm having chest pains. I called the doctor and uh, he told me to get to the hospital as soon as I can and I wanted you to go. So Jim brought me here. And I kind of feeling like she didn't really believe that, but she just looked at me and said, why? I said, just get your manager. So she called on her manager and I grabbed one of her coworkers and whispered. And I said, can you please just go tell the manager to get her out of here? The worst thing just happened to us. And, you know, the worst thing that could ever happen to a parent just happened this morning and the and the woman went and got the um manager and told you ain't hey, get go home You go with your husband you need you right now just go with him and i walked her out walked her out to my uh, neighbor's car i got her in and she was like who is it? what is it? what is it what's going on you're not sick and she knew and um i just looked at her yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what to say. Yeah. No, she just looked at me and said...
1: I, I'm, I'm just... I, I assume there's just no words that you, you you, can say.
0: No, she just looked at me and said, what's wrong? And I said, um, something, you know, something happened to Ryan. What happened? Was he in a car accident? Is he okay? And I just shook my head. And she kept saying, is he okay? I just I just shook my head and then finally I just blurted it out and I just said he was murdered and he's dead and of course she said I don't believe you why are you telling me something like this and uh, I just said we got to get home and uh, we got in the car and she never said much after that she just wanted to know a little bit where it was and how it happened and then she just started shutting down
1: so, so your your family's forced to deal with this this devastating news and and did you uh, was your first thought i need to go there i need to see what's going on
0: yeah i you know probably it would have been if i seen it on the news Because I probably would have connected the dots because his friends were all over the news. And so I would have knew who it was. But being that um, I didn't see it and after I was told the news, my whole focus was on my wife and um,
1: my daughter, Kimberly, and my son, Kevin. So you just wanted to make sure they were all okay and and try and keep them as, as together as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, I knew I knew that this uh, just the first day was going to be mostly shock and um, disbelief, and um, tons of media I knew would start coming. So I was hoping to make sure we got ourselves um, somewhat together, and uh, you know, to, to keep some kind of poise about us as a family.
1: Uh, one thing I, w- I wanted to know. Um, what well, you're left to deal with this as a family. Meanwhile, the, the police have to start this inve- investigation trying to catch the person that did this to Ryan. Did they have any immediate leads or, or suspects right away? How, how quickly did the that investigation start going? Uh, they didn't have
0: anything real quick in, uh, right away. Um, a few weeks after they... They had some ideas who they who it could be. Um not just one person. They had a few people of interest that they were following through that uh that neighborhood that they they either wanted to talk to or, you know, um, needed to get some information one way or another. And um, so so they, they really worked through a gambit of um persons of interest. And, and he was one of them um, but doing uh, you know doing the the best police work that they could do um, it wasn't quickly done
1: it, it took months in fact several months to to get an arrest how many months total before someone was arrested uh 33 months yeah almost almost three years mm-hmm. during that time did you try and hold out hope that someone's going to be caught and and punished for this? Or uh, did there seem like days where it it seemed hopeless, like you were never going to find out who did this?
0: Yeah. um, There were days that you felt like that, but the um, detectives kept me abreast pretty much, uh, you know, every week or weekly, you know, monthly um on what was going on if there was any kind of change so because of that um him constantly being in contact with me and um letting me know uh where they were who they were looking at what they were looking for and um that kept um and I went, you know I guess hope but mostly my focus would uh, on myself at that point which was that you know they are working really hard, and that gave me relief, knowing that no matter what Ryan's case, how long it's going, they're not going to stop
1: so it did, it never felt to you like it was just like a a case that they put on a shelf that was collecting dust. You knew they were actively investigating it.
0: Yes, completely they were, and um I knew early on that just let them do their job. I tried not to uh, intervene, make any suggestions. You know, I, I, I don't know their job, and um, I I knew if I would just let them do their job, that it would come back one way or the other that they found somebody or they didn't know what they're working on, and,
1: and that's exactly what happened. And when they arrested the person that did this, the, a man named David Earl Williams Jr., and you found out more about him as far as having a, a checkered past, did it make you angry that someone like him was out there running around committing these kind of crimes, especially since they had a history of, of other crimes?
0: I, I wouldn't say angry. I was disappointed in one way that he was able to continue to do those things. Um, you know, that he was able to Pointing out of, uh, the system, um, uh, and, you know, be able to get back out on the street and do certain things. And, you know, um, cause he was released fairly, uh, you know, three to four weeks before Ryan was murdered on another crime that he did a few, you know, back a few years before that. So I, you know, it, I was never angry about it. I was, I guess, as I just said, more disappointed in in where it was.
1: It seems frustrating in, in so many of these cases that we see in the news and uh, that people that sometimes do these kind of things, you find out that they've done other serious crimes or violent crimes before. And, and it sometimes makes me wonder, at least, um, how are they out on the street to do this when they should probably be in jail for for some of the other stuff they've done?
0: Yeah, I felt that way, um, but I, I, I started to understand uh, a little bit that the justice system is what it is, and um, it's something that we all have to be able to live with. Um, we have no control over what they do um, and how the justice system works. Um, it works pretty good and sometimes these things happen, um, which doesn't mean that no one has any control. It's really just what the system, um, you know, gives to whoever the offenders are. And we just happen to be one of those recipients of a continual offender that, you know, ended up himself, um, his someone his own life at the same time
1: and well he was convicted of Ryan's murder and sentenced to a mandatory life sentence. Did you attend the trial and and how hard was that for for you
0: yeah we yeah i my whole family attended the trial I was at every hearing over the three years before um the trial came, so when we got to the trial um I think by being able to be at um, every hearing and having a vic- victim advocate with us and um, then guiding my wife and I through, you know, each, each hearing that, and and actually preparing us as much as they could for the hearing. Um, I think it helped, but once you get in that courtroom and it starts, a lot of that starts to change. Um, and it's more that you start becoming very attentive on what's going on in the, in the room, um, how the jurors might be um, listening and you know, how the prosecution's presenting their case. Um, you're really zoned in on all of it, that you feel like you're the only one sitting in that room. And you just, you you don't react much. You just kind of sit there and try to take it all in. And hope for the hope for the best for the justice system at that point, because I I, I started to prepare myself early on that once Ryan uh, Ryan was murdered, that was us that were dealing with that pain. And after that, it was the law enforcement, and then after that, it was the um, justice system and the prosecution. We had no control over any of that. So whatever happened at the trial, we're still the same people when we leave. We still have that loss when we went home. So I think through the trial was more that you hope for the best for justice to prevail.
1: Did Ryan's killer ever show any kind of remorse or take any kind of responsibility as far as you saw?
0: None at all. When the verdict was read, there was not a reaction, nothing.
1: And again, this is somebody that's been through the system been through you know prison um and and had maybe you know i I don't know i can't speak for him but maybe had used been used to it and was desensitized um and and that's that's unfortunate to not at least show any kind of remorse did you did you get to give any kind of victim's uh statement or impact statement for your family
0: yes i yeah I was able to give one and anybody could and you know I gave one and a few other people did um and more mine was more not even directed at him it was more directed at what happened to our family and where we had to go from here
1: so it it seems almost as if now that he was going to be punished, you wanted to to not focus on him, not give him the attention, but turn the focus back to your family and figure out how to go forward.
0: Yes, it's exactly what I, when I was hoping to do, you know, knowing that our family was still going to grow and, um, you know, hopefully joy and happiness will start to come back, even though you still carry that, that pain and, and that mourning and, you know, everything with you. But if we didn't start to try and, Um, heal, I guess you could use as a word Um, the wounds at least that they don't hurt as much that was my focus
1: and it's been a decade now since Ryan's murder and not to say you'll have closure because I don't think there's any real thing as closure Uh, you can't, your son can't come back to you but in, in that time, in that 10 years since you lost him have you been able to to move forward and and start, as you mentioned, uh, experiencing some of those other things in life to to try and um, not maybe normalize things as much as possible for you?
0: Oh yeah, completely. Um, you know, as I wrote in my in all my journals, you don't think you're moving ahead at times, and you know because you're always you know stuck in certain areas of the grief and depression and, and the pain. And, um, my daughter, um, got married. I knew at that point that things were going to start to change completely. Uh, and it you know, started bringing us joy and happiness back to our family. And, you know, the love and, and, the, and, the, and the caring that we had for each other was, was always there. Um, but the, her getting married was the one that started it all and then, um, having our first grandchild, of course. And, um, he just that point. You could see all of us just, you know, the smiles and, and, and the laughter became more real and real and not that fake sometimes that you did just because you were around people and you wanted to make sure that they didn't think that you were completely, you know, um, Grieving completely all the time, even though you were. Um, and then my second grandchild, and then my son Kevin getting married recently in the last couple of years. It, 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 if, it, if you don't let family move and grab onto it, I, you know you can let it go. And we all grabbed onto it, and um, it's special even more now because Ryan came with us at each um, venture that has come about in the last 10 years.
1: So he's still, still part of you still there, even though he's not physically there.
0: Yes. Um, yeah, he was, he was part of each wedding. Uh, you know, my two children um, honored him in the, the way that they wanted to honor him at, the, at their weddings. And, and, um, and my daughter, you know, gave her first child, um, Mason Ryan's, Ryan's name for a uh, second name. So his name's Mason Ryan. So, so, so the, you know, it, it, it's there, and um, I could be more happier about where our life is now.
1: Well, And you, you mentioned uh, that you had started writing some journals, and, and that led to um, uh, a, a book, uh, For the Love of Family. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that? how that unfolded and how that's helped you, uh, in, in writing that?
0: I started journalizing almost from, I would say journalizing in the beginning. Um, it was just more information the morning of it when they were giving me tons of information. So I started writing things down and, you know, um, make sure that I didn't forget things. And then, uh, I started to, you know, Think of that. Okay, how am I going to keep all this stuff together? And I would just start writing, and then one day we were—it was probably late September, after Ryan died in 09, uh, that we're at a victim, victim advocate counselor, and she suggested that my wife and I, why well, you guys just, you know, start writing? Maybe just write on a piece of paper certain things, and and i have never thought I would ever be the one to start doing that. I thought it would be my wife, so. I started to sit in the morning and, you know, you're, you're going through some things and stories about Ryan and, you know, we're looking at um, the case and things are, and I just started writing on paper and saving them all and folding them up, and putting this little booklet that I started writing the information about what I needed to do the morning of Ryan's murder. And then about a month or so in, my wife comes back, from the dollar store, and says, "I think this would be cheaper to put these in journals and not write in pieces of paper." <laughs> I said, "Okay." And the first journal was was probably capitalized most of one year, and then the second journal started to be almost daily, and I ended up, you know, writing six journals that encapsulated uh, the whole six years from that time Ryan was murdered through the trial. And um, I joked about it once, well, I should write a book. I should write a book and people suggested, why don't you? And I said, well, if I do this, I wanna be the way I want it. And as journals, I want it written in the real time. I don't wanna have this as a memory. I want people to be able to read it and see um, each day progression that I go through and I believe people that have gone through this some of this they go through themselves so I think I wanted to make sure it was in real time so So, talking to a few people and friends I found someone to help me uh, clean up the journals if if you could say you know you know because when you're journalizing you know it's there's misspellings and there's no punctuation so um, at that point that's how it all got started
1: uh so it's a it's a collection of sort of real time uh experiences that you put to to paper so to speak
0: yes exact it's my exact journals I mean so it'll be January tenth at six thirty a m
1: wow that, I think that I mean, would give people a really a really good bird's eye view of sort of what someone that's been through what you've been through um how it affected you and and how you uh, dealt with it by in writing those things, and and where can people find that book?
0: Uh, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble's, um, iBooks, for uh, the uh, love of family. How at the door changed everything, and also you can go to um, our foundation's website, RyanPMcCall.com, and there'll be links there. That you can it'll take you right to all those.
1: Well, we'll definitely put those links in the show so people can find that. I think that'd be very. Very good reading and uh, stuff for people to read. Um, and, and, and just a final question, being 10 years uh, since Ryan's murder, uh, looking back, what would you like to see or what do you think that Ryan's legacy is or should be?
0: I think the, the legacy of Ryan himself is that he was a loving, caring person wanted to do what he could for others um and that's what our foundation is based on um is his his love for life is what um i think i want everybody to remember that he had a true um love of life he he didn't let things bother him as much and let him roll off his sleeve other than the philadelphia eagles but (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but I think that's the most thing, his love of life.
1: Uh, and it, it sounds just from him talking with you, it sounds like he may have gotten uh, a big part of that from you. Yeah, I guess so. I, I can't thank you enough, Kevin, for coming on to talk about uh, your experience and in, in, in Ryan's story. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us.
0: Oh, thank you for, for taking the time to, to talk about the story in my book. And hopefully you can reach out to um, people and read it. and. Um, you know and and maybe give them somewhat of a, a view on uh, what happens to a family uh, when this happens because I always tell people I never want you to try to understand just be understanding
1: thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at com, for writing and research assistance in this episode if you enjoyed this episode please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. As we wrap up, I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a true crime podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Direct Appeal. Be sure to give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.
0: On April 23rd, 2007, I was convicted of the murder and dismemberment of my husband.
1: On Direct Appeal, we examine the murder conviction of Melanie McGuire following a highly publicized trial. Looking at the evidence that was presented and the evidence that may have seemed insignificant at the time, we form our own conclusion about Melanie's guilt. I know when I should have left. She would never do this, but I think she knows something. Am I telling them I'm having an affair? Nobody's asking. He owed money out on the street, and that's how you get shot here and here.
0: It's unlikely that her pistol was used in this crime. It's not about who's innocent or guilty. It's about a notch in your belt. Searches that include how to kill your wife, how to poison your wife. They had bags contains victims' parts. Prosecutor is fierce. You will be taking the stance literally live on court TV. I
1: expected
0: the worst, and what I got was one step shot of the worst.
1: To listen to Direct Appeal, please download and
0: subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.